People do it different ways. Some use sleeping bags under the stars. Some use tents. Some use air mattresses and bring along TVs. Some dress up in drag. Others do it spending time as POWs. Sounds like it's time for episode 71 of Pop Art, the podcast where we find the pop culture and art and the art in pop culture. On Pop Art, my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your What Have I Done host, Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome back as my guest, blogger and podcaster Movie Rob, who has chosen as his selection the David Lean Alec Guinness epic The Bridge on the River Kwai, while I have chosen the more cynical Brian Forbes angry young man film King Rat, both about prisoners in a Japanese internment camp during World War II. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Rob, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? I've been a movie blogger for almost nine years. On my website, I have over 8,400 reviews of movies. And about a year ago, I started a podcast, which was The Great Escape Minute. It's a movies by minute podcast, which dissects the movie The Great Escape one minute at a time. We have 172 normal episodes, plus another three bonus ones. As of now, we're in the home stretch. We're in the 130s. So I have another month and a half or so till that's done. And then I'm going to be moving along to season two. Okay, great. With that, let's get to your selection, and that is The Bridge on the River Kwai. First, some information about the film. The Bridge on the River Kwai is an epic war film released in 1957. It was directed by David Lean and written by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, based on the novel written by Pierre Boulle, inspired by his experiences working on the railroad while a prisoner during the war. It stars William Holden, Jack Hawkins, Alec Guinness, Sasua Hayakawa, James Donald, Andre Morel, Peter Williams, John Boxer, Percy Herbert, Harold Goodwin, Ann Sears, Henry Okawa, and Joffrey Horn. In the 1943 Japanese POW camp in Burma, American Commander Shears watches as a new group of British soldiers march into camp led by the very British Colonel Nicholson. They are there to help build a railway bridge to transport soldiers and supplies across the island. Nicholson and the head of the camp, Colonel Sato, battle over whether officers can help build the bridge, a violation of the Geneva Convention. Nicholas wins the battle, but in return, helps build the bridge in a timely manner. Shears escapes, but is then forced back to the island to lead a team to the bridge to blow it up as the first train will come through carrying Japanese soldiers. But has Nicholson gone too far in helping the Japanese? Before talking about the film, I thought we'd start off by talking about movies in general about World War II. This film was made in 19. 57, but even today, World War II is a subject that is still popular in films and television. Some people call the History Channel the World War II channel. What is it about the war that you think captures the imagination of people, even if people have been born so long after the war was over? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that World War II was one of the first wars where your average man was drafted and sent overseas to go do things. Most of the characters that you find in World War II movies are not professional soldiers. They're people who have a normal life, whatever their job was. They got uprooted because of this thing that was happening around the world. They don't necessarily want to be there, but they're still fighting for something, whether it's to get home or whether it's trying to find themselves or things like that. So a lot of World War II movies deal with your every man who's actually doing the fighting. You see this a lot more later with Vietnam movies. 
when you try to talk about World War II movies versus Vietnam movies, World War II movies usually are looked upon in a more positive perspective because it was a war that everybody was for. Vietnam was something where there was a lot more controversy. With World War II, you rarely will hear someone say, oh, we shouldn't have fought that war. It was something that needed to be done. I think you make some very good points. A lot of people consider World War II to be the last good war. Exactly. Uh, it, yeah, it was the last war that was fought on terms that people have a hard time arguing with. You know, after that, we had wars that were more and more questionable, like Vietnam and Iraq, both wars that were based on lies created by the government that we should never have been in in the first place. But this was a moral war fighting an enemy that had to be stopped no matter what. But both of these films do show growing cynicism and even a somewhat revisionist look at the war that were reflective of the time they were made. Our second film is especially a reflection of this extreme system of the time. But I think we may come full circle now and we're returning to a more positive view of the war as it was dramatized during the war itself. Why did you choose this film? Well, this has always been a favorite of mine. When I was a young teen, I couldn't even tell you what, how old I was at the time. My stepfather, he loved watching this movie, and he got me to watch it with him, along with a couple other World War II classics. I avoided it at the beginning because I said, who wants to watch a three-hour movie? I reached a point where I said, okay, I'll check it out. I loved it. I can't even tell you how many times I've seen this movie. It's amazing for me every time I watch it. I rewatched it yesterday in order to prepare for this. It's been over 24 hours since I watched it, and I'm still on a high from watching it. When you spoke to me and asked what movie I wanted to do, this was the first one that came into mind. Afterwards, we had that whole discussion about that most movies that you've done are post-1960. And here I was able to give you one that was pre-1960. Yes, that's right. This is only perhaps the second one that is pre-1960 that the guest has chose. The other was Singing in the Rain. I don't remember exactly when I first saw it, but i sure I first saw it on television when I was very young, probably in the 60s. I think this is my third time for seeing it. I'm not absolutely sure, but I don't think I've seen this on the big screen. I could be wrong. I've never seen it on the big screen. I'd love to be able to find a, a way to see this on the big screen. And I did very much love it the first time I saw it. I thought it was very exciting. The plot really gets you going. The more and more I see it, though, for me, it becomes more interesting thematically than the plot. I also find that the faults of the movie, mainly in the ending, which has been criticized over the years, have become more obvious. And we'll talk about both of those later. First, what are some of your favorite scenes? Wow, there are so many favorite scenes in this movie. The whole defiance of Nicholson with Saito, those are great. It's a number of scenes that happen one after the other. You know, the whole idea of him showing that because of the Geneva Convention, he's not willing to allow his officers to do any manual labor. And they stand out in the middle of the sun all day where you see even one or two of them faint. He is principled. He wants to make sure that everything that he does goes according to the book. When I saw this, I had already known of Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi. For me, it was also very strange to see Alec Guinness in this type of role. It's very different than what he did in Star Wars. As I learned more about his career in the movies, I realized that this was also one of his first dramatic roles. He was in all these British comedies beforehand, which to me is hilarious because I would never think of him as a comedic actor. You're right. That's what he was really known for before this movie. And he showed here how powerful an actor he can be and how he can give such a dramatic performance. I think I, I even read that he didn't want to take the role because he didn't think that people would be able to take him seriously in this type of role. In my opinion, it's one of the best performances in movie history. But I'm getting off target a little bit here. You asked me if I have any favorite scenes. <laughs> well, that's one. 
it's actually hard to pin down specific scenes because to me the whole thing just flows so well from shot to shot i mean william holden has some great scenes also but but a lot of them have more to do with the dialogue this isn't a flashy movie it's not like the type of movie where you're gonna say ah i remember that scene this was such a great scene it's more that you remember the experience of watching this movie and watching everything play out I certainly understand that. That often happens on a film that people really, really like. Certainly for me, the one scene that is the most famous, the one that always sticks with me most, is the march into the camp with the famous Colonel Bogey march. Yes. Though today when I watch it, I'm more like Shears' character, the William Holden character, looking at him. Is, Is this guy a little crazy? Because I felt this time seeing him as a bit more off than I've ever experienced the character before. So in this scene, I'm watching them much in and I'm thinking, is there something wrong with this guy? But it's a very stirring scene and it works very, very well. You do know that there are lyrics to it, right? Yes. And I do know that Malcolm Arnold, who did the music for the film, did not write it. It dates back to 1914. And it actually came about because none of the actors could march in time. And David Lean was getting more and more frustrating. He just yelled out at them, whistle a march or sing a march. And someone started whistling the Colonel Bogey March. And that's how they end up coming to a camp to it, because it was the only way they could march and keep time. Yeah. It's actually ironic that they're whistling it in the Pacific front, since it has basically to do with Hitler. The lyrics. I know this is family friendly, so we won't necessarily uh, discuss the specific lyrics if you don't want to. But it's all about Hitler and Goring and Himmler. That makes sense. The only thing I thought was odd about it is I'm going, you've marched through thousands of miles of jungle and you actually have enough water and energy to whistle. And they actually asked someone who was not in Burma. I think he was in Thailand. And they said, no, they probably would not have been able to whistle at that point. But it works. It works very well. It's just shot so well. When you explain the fact that Lean used it because he wanted to get everyone to march in tandem, that works. But the idea that when you're watching it and the way that this regiment is just comes through is just amazing. It shows that they're coming there with their heads held up high and they're not there feeling like they've been disgraced. I also like the scene where Shears gets trapped into returning, where they really play him until he finally says, well, if I have no choice in returning, then I might as well volunteer. And the British go, oh, great, he's volunteering. That's an amazing scene with Hawkins. And I also like some of the quiet moments, especially at the end where Nicholson is walking along the bridge as the sun is coming up. He is just so proud of this bridge he's built. For me, one of the best shots is when Nicholson realizes his error, and you can see it on his face. I mean, Guinness does an amazing job playing this part, as I mentioned before. (laughs) And he says, what have I done? Exactly. uh, David Lane is the director. He started out as an editor from Silent Film Days, and like Hitchcock, worked his way up, though Hitchcock became a director much quicker. Are you a fan of David Lane? I am definitely a fan of David Lane, but this is by far my favorite movie of his. I actually tend to prefer his quieter movies over his epics, his earlier films like Blythe Spirit and Brief Encounter, Hobbs' Choice, Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, Summertime. Then he started making films like The Bridge on the River Kwai. And he epic. Sw- he switched gears and started making epics. This was his, basically his first epic. And then you have Lawrence of Arabia, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Dr. Zhivago, Ryan's Daughter, A Passage to India. He was making smaller movies until summertime. And at that point, he had enough screen credit to do what he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was make epics. Well, I'm not sure that's totally true. Yes, he did want to make some epics, but he also found himself trapped to where he just couldn't return 
weren't making any smaller films. His epic films aren't often considered as good as his smaller films. Ryan's Daughter and Dr. Shivago are held, I think, in lesser regard. Yes, and, because and, they're not as good. <laughs> yeah, and then Brief Encounter and Great Expectations and Summertime. A Passage to India I like, though he changes the ending and he makes it more optimistic than the book. Those films just don't appeal to me as much. I'm not sure why. Lawrence of Arabia, I love the first half, but the second half, I think, doesn't quite come together. We'll see something similar actually happened to George Siegel, where he got trapped and couldn't make the kind of films he wanted to make after a certain point. Not that I'm saying that David Lean wanted to go back and do nothing but small films, but in a way he got cast as this epic film director and... Well, that's pretty much basically how he's remembered by most people. Yes, he's mainly remembered Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge Over the River Kwai. For people really into film, he's also remembered for these earlier films as well. He finally gave up trying to do the mutiny based on the mutiny on the bounty film. And then I think he died not long after that. But he is considered a major filmmaker of all time, mainly because of Lawrence of Arabia. That's a movie that really inspired so many filmmakers, including Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. Correct. And then we have the screenplay. There's a lot of interesting things to talk about when it comes to the screenplay, because it is set against the construction of the Burma Railway. But almost every single thing in Bull's novel and subsequently the screenplay are almost entirely fictional. There's almost nothing in this movie that happened this way in real life. And some are even controversial. Alec Guinness had problems with the film because he and others thought it was anti-British. For example, in real life, there's no real collaboration with the enemy. This was all fictionalized. In fact, this collaboration was based on French collaborators that Bull encountered while he was in a camp. But to begin with, it was written at first by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, both of whom were blacklisted. Yes. They had to work in England in secret. Their names were not put on the film at the time. They were later added on and given credit for it. And they were given Oscars for it also. Yes. Pierre Bowl, who wrote the book, he couldn't speak English. It was so obviously he could have possibly written the screenplay, but they had to give the credit to someone. So they gave the credit to him. David Lean also worked a lot on the screenplay and was very upset that he never got the credit from the producer. The producer wouldn't give him any uh, screen credit for that. I think he had enough Oscars anyway. Okay. Yes. And just as a side note, it should be noted that Pierre Bull also wrote Planet of the Apes. Correct. Some ways you could probably make connections between the two. The idea that I guess you could say stranger in a strange land type of thing. You know, how do you how do you survive in an environment where you don't know how things work? Every one of these characters in Virgin Requires is like that. I love the fact that you basically have four main characters here who all have different viewpoints on the same themes and the movie constantly reiterating each of their stances on it. It gives you so much insight into how different people might look at the same situation or the same idea, see it in so many different lights, that things in war, in this case, are not black and white at all. Well, certainly, I think we'll see here, as well as in King Rat, to support your point, these are people caught up in a situation where there is no morality. So you have to start creating your own morality. But how do you create a morality or what morality do you use when you're entrapped in a situation like this? where the people who are in charge don't really treat people according to generally accepted moral standards. As Sato said, this is war. The Geneva Convention doesn't mean anything here. If you look at how both Germany and the Japanese treated the people they conquered, they just treated them without a shred of morality. How do you survive? But that's how we look at it. No, I think that's pretty 
generally, even Germany today will probably tell you, yeah, what Germany did was pretty horrendous. And I think a lot of Japanese will say what they did in Korea and China and how they treated POW is totally different from the West. That was totally immoral. That was just wrong. That was hideous. Correct. I'm not saying at all that what they did was moral, but I'm saying from their viewpoints, what they were doing was completely moral. That's what you do more. And then you have to dig deeper and find out why they have adopted that morality. I'll go over a couple of things here, just really quick. The film is relatively faithful to the novel. There are two exceptions. Have you ever read the novel? No, this is just from research. I'd love to be able to get a copy of an English version of it, obviously. There must be translation someplace, but it may have gone out of print. But Shears in the book is British. In the movie, he becomes American. And in the novel, the bridge is not destroyed. Really? The train plummets into the river from a secondary charge placed by the Shears character. But Nicholson does not fall into the plunger. The bridge suffers only minor damage. And in fact, as we'll find out, there are actually two bridges that were built. Both of them uh-huh. survived till the end of the war. So in many ways, it was a failed mission in the book a successful mission in the movie, but a completely fictionalized mission altogether because this never happened. Yeah, Uh, it's a great mission. The author, Pierre Bull, liked the movie except for the ending. He liked his own ending better. So things that were not true to history. The conditions to which the POW and civilian laborers were subjected were far worse than the film depicted. In fact, in King Rat, that is much, much closer to the way it was in the Japanese internment camps. Approximately 13,000 prisoners of war died and were buried along the railway. 80,000 to 100,000 civilians also died. The head of the camp in real life was a Lieutenant Colonel Philip Tuzzi. But Tuzzi was nothing like Nicholson. He was not a collaborator who felt obliged to work with the Japanese. He did as much as possible to lay the building of the bridge. He and his men even collected termites to eat the wooden structure. Uh And they made sure the concrete was badly mixed. Someone said that in real life, someone like Nicholson would probably have been quietly eliminated by the other prisoners. long before now yeah i mean you see throughout this movie how much he is revered by all of his troops but in real life he would not have been right okay that's true but i'm looking at it from the perspective of the movie and even when they start singing for he's a jolly good fellow and he's sent into the cooler it already says something about this is a commander that everyone looks up to and that's essential in this type of movie you want him to be as likable as possible and that's why everyone follows his orders right but i think it's also necessary to compare this to real life if you're yeah, trying to make a point about how these people were treated in a prisoner of war and what they did, and you lie about it because none of this happened in real life, none of this would have happened this way in real life, and in fact, none of this did happen this way in real life, then you do have to question some of the attitudes in the movie and what they're trying to say. And right. in fact, Pierre Bowl, as I said, based Nicholson's actions more on French officers who did collaborate, ah. so, but in a different location. It didn't have anything to do with building a bridge. They were just collaborating because he wasn't in Burma. He was in Right, but also the way that this film depicts it, it's not really collaboration with the enemies. He's trying to keep his men alive by keeping their spirits up and giving them purpose. Well, he can tell himself anything he wants. If he had lived, he probably would have come up before a car marshal of some sort. He can tell himself he's not collaborating. But everybody like Shears and the other people, they know he's collaborating. Even if he doesn't consider collaborating, that's irrelevant to whether right. he is okay. collaborating or not. Right. Okay. I understand that. Yeah. We tell ourselves all sorts of things um, <laughs> in order to of get Of course. That's the, that's the way it works. I'm not saying he would ultimately be convicted. He might have been able to say, well, I did this because of this, this, this. And this, but he would have been in real trouble after the war. In addition, 
uh, Seicho, who's the head of the camp in the movie, was in real life second in command of the camp. In real life, Seicho was respected by his prisoners for being comparatively merciful and fair towards them. Tusi later defended him in his war crimes trial after the war, and the two became friends. When Tusi died, I believe Seicho made a pilgrimage to England to visit his grave. Yes, I, I read that also. One of the minor things is that the bridge was not really built across the River Kwai. Bull aired here. It was at a different location. So after the war, they renamed the river where the bridges are to the River Kwai. Because <laughs> tourists kept coming to see the bridge on the River Kwai. So they finally, we'll just change the name and we'll make the River Kwai. <laughs> That's actually really funny. Wow. <laughs> Both were destroyed two years later by Allied bombing, but still bridge was repaired and still in use today. Wow. But a couple of things we can talk about here is there was a different look at the war from World War II. This, as you say, was 1957. It's 12 years after the war ended. Up until now, the movies weren't as dark in their depiction of the war until now. And they weren't as graphic either. From what I understand, was a jumping off point where it started saying, okay, we're now going to show you the horrors of war, which was not shown as explicitly beforehand. You had a lot of John Wayne type movies, stuff like that, where obviously there were characters that were killed, but it wasn't done in the same way. This is a very dramatic way of depicting the horrors of the war in the Pacific. So, yes, they were becoming much more realistic, I guess, in the approach to dramatizing the war. The British are so stiff after a lip, especially the upper class officers. And I think this movie starts to question that and satirize that to a certain degree, where they would never have done that in World War II. In World War II, the British stiff after a lip, they'll always be in England, is what they consider helped them get through the war. And then in addition here, the American is no hero. He just wants to live. And once he escapes from that island, he never wants to get back. And he has this plan to get out of the war. And he's forced to go back. If this was made during the war. He would have volunteered and jumped at the chance to go back. But now we're having people involved in the war who are going, well, I did my part. I don't necessarily want to be there. Right. This was the beginning of a change. And I think we'll even see a bigger change in King Rat. What do you think of the ending? I must say, as a kid, I was shocked that there was a movie like this that doesn't really have a happy ending, where the main characters are almost entirely killed off. Every time I watched it, even when I watched it again yesterday, it's so sad watching these characters die. But on the other hand, it's fulfilling because it makes sense that this is what should be happening to these characters. I mean, even Shearer's, who we just talked about a few minutes ago, that he was trying to do anything he could to get out of this. He dies heroically in the end. The whole time he's trying to plan his way of getting out of the war. Even the fact that when he's in the hospital area in Ceylon, every day he's with a different nurse. He's living his life. Throughout this entire trek, after he quote-unquote volunteers, he still wants to get home. But in the end, when he sees what's going on, he makes that split-second heroic decision to try to do his duty. He has the most ironic storyline, doing everything yep. he does to escape and then has to go back and dies doing it. Yeah. And this was matching the time in the 1950s. This was the beginning of the 1960s, even though this was one of the best times economically. People were more and more dissatisfied, and this led mm -hmm. to all the all the rebellions in the 1960s. So we're seeing this in movies as well. We see this American who, in the 1940s, would never have been written this way. Now he's someone who, oh, I did my duty. I went out. I don't want to go back. But there's also the ending, and this has been the most controversial aspect of the movie, 
I think people consider it disappointing because it muddles everything that comes before. And that's Nicholson falling on the detonator. Does he do it on purpose? Does he do it accidentally? If he does it accidentally, well, then what is the theme of the movie? Has it now gone from a reexamination of what it means to be a hero or to something totally nihilistic? Where it doesn't right. matter what you do, you're going to fall on the detonator and you're going to accidentally save the day. Critics over the years, and then at the time, it said this was the most problematic aspect of the film. I think if you look at his face, he has realized what he has done wrong and he's on his way to hit the plunger. Even though he dies second seconds beforehand, he's on his way there. If his body falls and actually continues doing what it is that he wanted to do, I wouldn't say it's that far-fetched. Whether it works or not, it really looks good, and it really works. Exactly. You were talking earlier about Ali Guinness and how much you liked him in this role, and I certainly agree. This is one of his best performances. And Guinness did have some reluctance taking the role because he felt it was very anti British, which probably helped his performance, since if he considered it that, if he had issues with it that way. But he did clash with Lean on it. He wanted to play the part with more of a sense of humor and sympathy, but Lean wanted Nicholson to be a bore. And I think Lean probably was more correct. You want him to be the upper class British soldier to make the point. If you place it with humor and sympathy, then you might start sympathizing with him a bit too much. But he wasn't the first choice. Charles Lawton was actually the first choice. So there is conflict over that now. I guess Lean denies that. But according to all the sources, Charles Lawton was the first choice. I think Lawton would have been brilliant, except that he's, of course, totally physically wrong. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Lawton would be able to do the character really well, but he would have had to have lost a lot of weight right. in order to play yes. it. You can't have someone march in with a group of people who are all dying from hunger and starvation, and he looks really well fed and together. But he also said that he didn't understand the character, and he didn't understand it until he saw Guinness play it. And I've seen actors who say that before. I just didn't understand this character. And then someone they just said, oh, OK, and now I get it. But they really clashed. After one scene, Lean said to Guinness and to all the English actors, he said, now you can all F off and go home, you English actors. Thank God that I'm starting work tomorrow with an American actor. And that was William Holden. However, he used Ali Guinness in most of his films after this. Yes, he wasn't yes. in Brian's Daughter, but he was in Lawrence of Arabia, Passions of Chicago. Right. And then in earliest films, he was in Great Expectations, and he gives an incredible performance, though a very anti-Semitic one in Oliver Twist. He definitely was able to show his range. There's no question about that. He was a great actor for that perspective, because you can see the different type of roles that he can play. One of the things that I read about this movie in particular was that he had a son who recovered from polio and had a specific limp. And when he's taken out of the cooler, he actually copied that limp. A lot of people claim that that's part of the reason why he was able to show so many people how great of an actor he can be. He did say that was his best piece of acting ever. Yes. And it is a great scene. What about the other actors? Do you have any favorites or what do you think of their performances? I've always been a big fan of William Holden. I loved him in this movie. He has a few others that I also really enjoy, but this is among my favorites because of the fact that he's an anti-hero. He's a hero who doesn't want to be a hero. Right. I find Sesu Hayakawa to be a very interesting character because he's a terrible 
person in the movie, but he eventually becomes, for me, almost the most sympathetic as he completely loses control. Every scene that you see that he loses all that control is when Nicholson, they decide to sit down and, and have this board meeting. I love that scene. Yeah, where, where he says, well, shouldn't we have tea and why don't we, why don't we work dinner? through dinner? <laughs> and you see the look on Hayakawa's face as he knows it's like sand going through his fingers, such that eventually he's planning to kill himself out of shame. Correct. He knows that his mission is to get the bridge built on time. That's what he has to right. do. So he's willing to compromise on things in order to get that done. Because but, he knows that if he doesn't do that, he's going to either get killed or going to have to kill himself. Mention probably should be made in cinematography by Jack Hildyard. This is not the only film that he worked on for David Lean. But after this, he didn't work on the others. He didn't work on Lawrence of Arabia. But he also inserted out on smaller films like Hobson's Choice, The Deep Blue Sea, The Heart of the Matter. He never became a top-rated cinematographer, but he's a very good one. And I think you like the way this film looked. Oh, I love it. There's so many scenes where you have all these birds flying in the sky or bats. I'm never quite sure what it is they're trying to show us, whether it's bats or birds. There are certain scenes at a waterfall and stuff like that. It's beautiful to look at the way that it's all shot. With that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $2.8 million to make and made $30.6 million worldwide. It was I.S. Grossing film of 1957. It won seven Academy Awards. It was nominated for eight, including Best Picture, Actor for Alec Guinness, Supporting Actor for Sesso Hayakawa, Directing, Editing, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, and Music. It won all of those Best Supporting Actor for Sesso Hayakawa. Usually I write down who did win that year, but... It was Red Buttons. Ah, Red Buttons for Sayonara. Yes. Okay. In 1997, the film was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the United States Library of Congress. In 1999, the British Film Institute voted the bridge on the River Kwai, the 11th greatest British film of the 20th century. As you mentioned, a subsequent releases of the film gave the two blacklisted writers proper screen credit. A 1988 interview with Barry Norman, Lean confirmed that Columbia almost stopped filming after three weeks because there was no white woman in the film, forcing him to add what he called a very terrible scene between Holden and a nurse on the beach. <laughs> As we said, The March was written, I have, in 1914 by Kenneth J. Alford, a pseudonym of British bandmaster Frederick J. Ricketts. Mitch Miller had a big hit with the recording of it. You're very young. I don't know if you know who Mitch Miller was, but he had a weekly show on TV called Sing Along with Mitch, where basically they just sang various songs for the whole time. I would watch it every week. I'm not sure why. I just really liked watching it. Oh, wow. Just as in Love is a Mini Splendor thing, in 1955, normally hairy-chested William Holden was forced to submit to a full body wax for his mini shirtless scenes in this movie. Now that's sacrificing for your art. Well, that's William Holden. What do you expect? Yes. Well, with that, let's get to my selection, and that is King Rat. First, some information about the film. King Rat is a war film released in 1965, and that is eight years later. It was directed and written by Brian Forbes, based on the 1962 novel of the same name by James Clavell, based on his experiences as a prisoner of war in Malaya. His George George Siegel, Tom Courtney, James Fox, Patrick O'Neill, Denholm Elliott, James Donald, Todd Armstrong, John Mills, Gerald Sim, Alan Webb, basically every British actor who wasn't in Bridge on the River Kwai. In a squalid Japanese internment camp, the American Corporal King basically runs the camp through his control of a black market and manipulation of supplies. While others suffer, he thrives. He brings on board British flight officer upper-class Marlowe to help him since Marlowe can speak Malay. But how long can King stay in power? 
Before talking about the film in particular, I thought it'd be interesting to compare the films in certain areas. As we said, it was released eight years apart. What do you think about their different attitudes toward the war? Has there been a change in those eight years? Yeah, there's a very big difference. I mean, again, as we were talking earlier about the fact that The Bridge on the River Kwai was already showing things in a very explicit manner, this movie goes even further and shows the dire circumstances and conditions that the prisoners in the Pacific Theater had to deal with. So this is another level down showing the hell on earth that prisoners needed to deal with. I agree with you. I think it's far more cynical than the bridge on the River Kwai in this many ways far more realistic. It was also made during the period of the Angry Young Man movement in films and plays, and I think it has a lot of feeling in such movies like Look Back in Anger, Billy Liar, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, The Entertainer, about people who are greatly disillusioned by England after the war and the problems of the time, because things did not really progress in England quite in the same way as they did in America. Right. In the same way, also, the Americans are portrayed in the same way. And neither of them are very heroic. All they want to do is survive. They do different things to survive. But that is, in many ways, their primary goal here. But now, after seeing Bridge on the River Kwai again and seeing King Rat, sometimes I wonder if they're not so much about being a prisoner of war as they are both comments about the British class system, especially first the Americans who comparatively have no real class system. Nichols' motivations are almost motivated by class. The commanding officers will not work. Uh, he has a stiffer upper lip, the always be in England attitude. He feels like an imperialist. In King Rat, the character of Gray, who's played by Tom Courtney, in many ways portrays the Nicholson character in that he wants everyone to play by the rules. But he's from the working class, and he's determined to hold the upper class to the same rules as the working class. After the war, the working class wasted no time in voting Churchill out of office. <laughs> right. That's very interesting. Oh. I didn't even think about that when I was watching them. I didn't either the first time. I think it's just something sometimes you wonder about if you start seeing them more than once. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? I thought it was an interesting pairing. I had only seen King Rat once before. I saw it about eight years ago, I believe, and I wasn't a fan. I actually reread my review and I actually hated it because I was comparing it to both Bridge on the River Kwai and Stalag 17 because it's a combination of both of those movies. Yeah. Yeah, as bad as the people were treated in German internment camps, they were treated far worse than the Japanese yes. internment camps. I'll admit that when you paired them, I wasn't looking forward to rewatching King Rat because I, I remember that I didn't like it. I didn't remember why I didn't like it. But when I rewatched it now, I got a new appreciation for it. I don't know if it's because I watched it back to back with The Bridge on the River Kwai or not, but I got a better understanding. I can't say that I loved it, but I can accept a lot more of what they're trying to show here. Like why I first saw it on television. I'm not sure why I watched it. Probably because I was just getting into films and was getting to the point where I would watch almost any film. So if it was on TV, I'll give it a shot. And over the years, since I first watched it, probably back in the 60s, I didn't remember all that much about it. I remembered a few things about it. But I did remember liking it when I saw it. And then when I rewatched it, I found it more interesting. I think if anything, well, we'll get into that later with the screenplay, what many people consider to be the main issue with the film. And why it may not work for them as well as other films. But do you have any favorite scenes? The scene with the dog, that was done really well. Especially when I read the trivia about it afterwards, about how they made that scene. Where none of the characters besides George Siegel actually knew that they're supposed to be eating dog. Right. So all the reactions so, were honest reaction to what they were doing. Exactly. One of the things I really enjoyed was the way that you see how these characters are doing all they can in order to survive. But they're trying to compare civilian life to 
a prisoner's life. See that also in Shawshank and things like that, where people are in a closed off area, but they're doing all that they can to feel human. They're betting. They're trying to get things from the outside. They're trying to bribe guards to get things. They're trying to show that they have power over others. No one's docile here. I thought that they showed that really well. Yes, I do think they put much more emphasis on what people are doing just to survive and get through the situation than they are in River Kwai, where it's more focused on the building of the bridge and it's more focused on just the lead characters. I do like the dog scene very much. And also the rats, where they cook the rats and sell them and they say it's something else. But for me, the highlight of the movie is the ending, where the British come in and none of the prisoners can't even talk to them. They're just so shocked by their experiences and by their being released that they're frozen. They just can't say anything except for King, who has no problem talking to, to the British soldiers who come in to release them. You see the look on George Siegel's face as you realize this is it. I was the king here. I'll never be the king again. And the British soldiers, as one says to him, you know, you're the only one who can talk. Why is that? And you realize just where his life is going to go. Right. And the irony of it is he's the one who has the most to lose. Right. You both feel sad for him, but at the same time, you're going, well, you know, you dug your grave. What goes around comes around. Right. The director's Brian Forbes who's really known for smaller films. He did things, The Whispers, The Wrong Box, which is probably the biggest film he made. King Rat, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, The L-Shaped Room, Whistle Down the Wind. He made a lot of these films at the time of this kitchen sink, Angry Young Men, period. Many of them I like very much. But after The Whispers, there's movies to become less interesting. That's, it may be because the times changed and the kinds of movies he was, was making were not quite as interesting. But he did tend to focus on the working class and people people who weren't necessarily have a lot of money or anything like that. I think he isn't held in quite as high regard as he should be because he made these very solid low key films. I'm not that familiar with him, but when I looked on IMDb, I was actually shocked to see how many acting credits he has. He's more yes. of an actor than a director. He played some key roles in a few movies that I love. He was in The League of Gentlemen. He was in Guns of Navarone. I mean, they were the main parts. I mean, he was in the cold dead story. Of the movies that he directed, I, I've seen The Stepford Wives. I've seen The Whispers. I've seen King Red, obviously. Sansa on a Wet Afternoon, The L-Shaped Room. And I believe I've seen Whistle Down the Wind. I'm not, I don't that's remember. A, yeah, that's with Haley Mills and Alan Bates. They find an escaped prisoner and they think he's Jesus. Ah, okay, it sounds silly, but it actually works. But yes, you're all right. His IMDb for acting is much, much longer or has more to it than for directing. And I think somewhere along the time when he made The Stepford Wives, which is a fun film, though I don't think it's as good as earlier films, his movies at that point do become a bit less interesting and probably made more of his living as an actor. He also adapted the screenplay here. One of the things I think that is most often criticized about it, it's more a series of incidents than a strong central plot. Mm-hmm. Correct. Right. And I think some people take issue with that. And I certainly understand that because it is. It's more a series of incidents. It's a series of incidents that you put them all together, it creates a pattern. It's not as if they're just different vignettes of things that are going on. There is some sort of consistency here. Right. And there is a journey for the James Fox character, who King takes on as his assistant because he can speak Malay. In many ways, the whole thing is seen through his eyes. He comes to understand what is really going on in this camp and decides to actually join forces with King 
instead of people from his own background. I love the scene with Gray when he starts realizing the way that the food is being distributed isn't being done in a very, what's the right word? <laughs> Some people yeah. are stealing food and they're not giving out the rations in the correct way. The upper class officers yeah. brush the whole thing under the rug. It's a really terrible situation everybody is in. And it's to a certain degree, how far do you transcend morality before you've gone too far? Right. And even though King is pretty much an amoral, immoral person, generally speaking, he never seems to do serious harm to the camp as a whole. And in fact, the British soldiers, the British officers, with their dealing with the food, perhaps are treating the prisoners even worse than King is. Yeah. He does things that we think are terrible, like he does the dogs and he does the rats. But by God, it, he did it in a cynical way for money, but it was food and it helped them survive. Right. He's one of those characters that are especially big in the 1930s during the Depression, where they're awful people. They don't live by the common bounds of morality, but without them, society would completely collapse yeah. because they're in a situation where the normal things of morality just aren't going to resolve what's going on. Right, right, right. That definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Clavel later said that my feeling is the film failed because Forbes took away the story thread and made it a composite of character studies. So the pacing and things of that nature probably aren't as strong as they could be in order to make the film more of a success. And perhaps if there was more of a story thread, you might have even liked it more than you do. Yeah. It also leaves out all the homosexuality of the book. There's a lot of coupling between the men, which often happens in enclosed situations of that nature. Right. Do you have some favorite actors? Well, first of all, the cast is, is amazing. You have such a talented cast here. I mean, you have Tom Courtney, James Fox, Daniel Melliott is great there, John Mills. I always love seeing James Donnell and everything that he does. You know, he's our connection between these two movies. There's a doctor in both of them. When you're good at something... That's very true. Yeah, I could see him getting the role and saying, oh, God, I get to play another doctor in a Japanese of war, prisoner of war camp. I'm getting typecast. <laughs> I do like George Siegel here very much, though. He is doing a different acting style than the British do. The positive aspect of that is that it does make him very, very different from the others. He's very much a different character. This was during, I think, his heyday as an actor. It was pretty much towards the beginning of his career. Uh, yes, I can't remember exactly when was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It was after that. That was 66, I think. Yeah, that's what really brought him to the attention. But he was doing all these small films around this time and after this. Bye Bye Braverman. I loved him in Ship of Fools, which came out the same year as King Rat. I think he's the best thing of California Split for Robert Altman. I think he's much better, much more interesting than Elliot Gould. But he just did these series of very interesting small films at this time. And I read that his career is becoming more and more successful, so successful that it costs more and more to cast him. Uh -huh. It eventually priced him out of more serious and interesting movies. And this was around the time when he did Roller Coaster. I love Roller Coaster. Well, George Siegel does not so movie. much. but uh, Yeah, but it is a fun movie. But after this, he really more became a sporting actor. He became a TV actor. I think he deserved a much better career than how his ended up. And then Tom Courtney was really known for playing working class heroes. People like Billy Liar and the Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. And in Dr. Shivago, he plays one of the revolutionaries. And he had a very solid career, but he more focused on the stage. So that's why you don't see him in right. movies quite as much. And then James Fox is the brother of Edward Fox. Though I 
can never can remember which one is which one, but he had a lengthy career playing upper middle class and upper class characters. But you're right. The casting on this was really excellent. Yeah, especially the fact that these are not necessarily likable characters. No. So they, they did a nice job of that. These are all just people trying to survive. What did you think of the cinematography? <laughs> trying to compare it to Kwai is very difficult. First of all, it's a black and white movie as opposed to being in color. It's very dark throughout the entire movie. There isn't enough lighting on purpose, obviously, in order to make us feel that all of these people are in a dark place the entire time, both physically and emotionally and mentally and all that stuff. Yes, it is black and white. I think the black and white cinematography is just absolutely gorgeous. It was done by Burnett Guffey. He won two Oscars. He won one for From Here to Eternity and Bonnie and Clyde. He had a distinguished but mixed career. We don't think of him perhaps as much as other cinematographers. But I uh-huh. think what is really the most interesting is that he and Brian Forbes did an incredibly convincing job of hiding the fact that the whole thing was filmed in California. Right. Everybody tends to get completely fooled about that. When I read that, I was quite shocked. I was sure that most of this was done on location somewhere. In fact, that's the only way they can do it. The studio, we're not going to pay any money for on-location shooting. So if they were going to do it, they were going to have to do it in California. And they got away with it. Hey, it worked. (laughs) That here's some more information about the film. I don't have any real financial information on it, but I do know it's a box office disappointment. It received two Oscar nominations. Burnett Guffey was nominated for cinematography and Robert Emmett Smith and Frank Tuttle for art direction. Richard Dawson appears near the end of the film as Captain Weaver, a paratrooper who was sent ahead to claim the prison from the Japanese as the war has ended. George Siegel's character, Corporal King, wears the shoulder patch of the American 34th Infantry Division. That division fought in North Africa and Italy, not in the Asian or Pacific areas of operation. The character of Peter Marlowe, the James Fox role, is based upon the author of the book, Clavel. And King Rat was the first book published of Cavell's sweeping series, The Asian Saga, though it's the fourth chronologically. And Two characters from King Rat also appear in Noble House. Brian Forb is the uncredited part of the radio announcer. There are no women in this film, unlike Kwai, where Lean was forced to include a white one, though there are also female natives in Kwai. While struggling to make it as a screenwriter, Clavel was hired to write the science fiction horror movie adaptation The Fly in 1958. This became a hit and launched Clavel as a screenwriter, so he's also known for writing and directing To Sir With Love with Sidney Poitier. So with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. Since we are talking about prisoner of war movies, there are two of my favorites that I would like to mention here. One of them is obviously The Great Escape, which I'm sure you're completely surprised about the fact that that I like that movie. (laughs) Obviously, it shows a very different perspective of life for prisoners in a POW camp during World War II. It still fascinates me to watch it all the time. The second one is one that King Rat definitely reminds me a lot about, and that is Stalag 17, which is a 1953 Billy Wilder movie, was also starring William Holden, who actually won an Oscar for his work there, playing a character very similar to the character that George Siegel plays in King Rat. Those would be my two recommendations. I've gone ahead and put down five, and the first one is Empire of the Sun, Steven Spielberg's 1987 adaptation of J.G. Ballard's memoir of his experiences in a Japanese internment camp. Yeah, I love that one. That's a great movie. It's a bit romanticized in some ways, but it's often a stunning work. I think it's one of my favorite Spielbergs. Considered one of the greatest films of all time, Jean Renoir's 1937 film La Grande Illusion is about French soldiers in a German camp during World War I and the subsequent escape of two of them. And this stars Jean Gabin and Eric von Stroheim. 
1959 is The Human Condition Part 1, No Greater Love, from filmmaker Masaki Kobayashi, a Japanese pacifist ends up as the head of a work camp and tries to treat the prisoners in a humane way, but finds that there is little he can do in the end. Mm, I've never seen that. Okay. Laszlo Neem's stunning feature debut 2015's Son of Saul follows the Jewish concentration camp Capo as he tries to find a rabbi to perform last rites over a body he believes to be his son. And then yeah, 19- Son of Saul was great. Yes, it's it's really knocks the wind out of you. In 1983's Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which I almost debated choosing for this, but for whatever reason, I did not. Directed by Nagisa Oshima, revolves around a strange relationship that forms between a prisoner and the Japanese commander of POW camp and a colonel who tries to stop the conflict turning into bloodshed. It's a very odd movie. Yeah, sounds like it. So what is next? What should we be expecting from you? On my website, as anyone who follows it knows, every day I have a few new reviews coming out. In uh, the middle of January, I will be getting to my 8500 review. And on my podcast, as I mentioned, I'm winding down on my first season of what is now known as the Movie Rob Minute instead of just the Great Escape Minute. When I finish that, which will hopefully be at the end of February, I will begin season two, which is the John Hughes comedy classic. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, where we'll be looking at that one minute at a time. Which we covered on Pop Art. We combined it with the Russian movie Ballad of the Soldier, because they were both about people trying to get to someplace within a very short period of time. When I finish season two, my plan right now is for season three to be Bridge of the River Kwai. I think it's becoming a pattern that every movie that I choose to use for Pop Art eventually becomes a minute-by-minute project for me. For me, I'll go through my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I publish two books of short stories in Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, or Rantings and Ravings of Screenplay Reader. And I am an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous podcast was Pop Art's Christmas episode, Home Invasion for the Holidays, in which Jay Cluett of the Lambcast and the Deep Blue Sea podcast talked Home Alone and Code 3615 Code Pair Noel, because nothing says Christmas like home invasions. For the next episode, Atab Liebenau of the Forgotten Filmcast and I will go west and talk two versions of the same story of Wyatt Earp, Tombstone, and My Darling Clementine. So with that, Rob, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. I'm very glad. Thank you very much for inviting me back. It's been a lot of fun. And like I said, I'll have to start thinking what my next one is going to be next time we do this.